Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau, and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today, we want to talk about strikes. Strikes in France, strikes in Germany, strikes in the UK. We had another bad day of insurrection in France yesterday. What happened? Is this a political crisis? Is this, a, is this ultimately about money? Where is this going? Well, the funny thing is, in France, it never it, it wasn't about the, the salaries. It wasn't about the wages like it is in Germany and other EU countries. So this one started with the pension reform. It was all about when to retire and for how many years you have to work until you get, you are actually eligible for the full pension. So uh, this was until Emmanuel Macron and his government triggered the famous Article 49.3, which actually allows the pension reform to pass without a vote in Parliament. That turned the whole insurrection, the whole protest movement into a sort of an outrage about the anti-democratic means that were employed to push the reform through. Now, Emmanuel Macron came on television to, actually, uh, it was a, quite a defiant performance from him and saying, it's necessary, we need to do the necessary, ready to sit on the table, but only if the other side, the trade unions are ready to compromise as well, signal some concessions. But basically, the message was, we need to turn the page. This was necessary. Let's move on to the next and employment and other things. Oh. Uh, that didn't go down well with the public at all. This was a very confrontational, seen as a very confrontational intervention. So the next morning, uh, we had a huge show of numbers, uh, protests. We also had violent clashes of uh, radicalized fringes. We've seen all over Europe, we've seen the, the images of burning something, burning in the background, police officers injured, many detentions. We are not there yet, like a gilet jaune in 2018, where it seems like the disorder took over country and it seemed that the security situation destruction was actually spiraling out of control. We're nowhere near that scenario yet. Uh, but what is clear is that it is no longer about the pension reform alone. It is now very personal. We look at the polls, the polls um, so the public seems to be backing the intensification of the strikes there backing the, the strikers and they want want more strikes they also if there were more radical clashes they would blame that on Emmanuel Macron rather than on the trade unions so there's definitely a difference perception amongst the public who's to blame for all this yeah but well, the difference now with uh, say 20 years ago 30 years ago when France also had a pension reform on the table, but that was rejected in the end, is that we've had very high productivity growth compared to today. And in those periods, it was possible to be somewhat less efficient in your in your economic systems because you, you had money left to basically pay for problems and, and, to, and to not sort them out in time. That is no longer the case with productivity growth low. And that's why we've seen clashes coming up in France and, and, in, other, and in other places. Yeah, the, pro the productivity growth component is actually a really Im important part of it. If you're talking about especially something, a, a system that is going to come under financial stress under a very long period of time, which is the case with the French pension system, then really even incremental improvements in your productivity growth are going to have a larger impact because they compound over time on your ability to actually kind of finance this system. So That, that's an important point. Another important point, of course, is the aging population dynamic. France has adopted for quite a long time a very aggressive pronatalist policy. You get um, very generous support and tax exemptions and things like this if you have children in France. This has meant that France's total fertility rate is 
higher than in many other developed countries, but it's still not at the 2.1 level where you would have what what kind of demographers call replacement level, right? Which is when you have enough economically active people coming in to deal with the basically the older people who are going to be leaving the workforce. So that's that too. You know, in terms of the political dynamics of what's going on in France, an important thing to mention, many of our listeners will already know this, but it, it is still important to mention is that in France, the right to strike is taken extremely seriously. It is a component of the French constitution. This is important because of what both sides are basically doing at the moment is kind of throwing the book at each other. So you have, at least as I interpret it, and and I'm also literally here living in France, watching it on a day to day basis. As I interpret it, you kind of have um, you know Macron and the French government saying, okay we are going to use the fullest extent of our constitutional powers to try and plow this thing through. And the response from the trade unions is kind of like, well, we have our constitutional powers too. So two can play at this game. The calculation of Emmanuel Macron seems to be that in every movement, in any any showdown like this, there will be a moment where uh, if there's more violence, for example, it would actually show badly on the trade union summit and eventually will actually force the public to say this is enough and that is enough and we we just want this to stop you then can coming in at, at the one who's in, installing order so in a sense this his intervention of throwing down the gauntlet uh, like that was coming out of that understanding that these are the dynamics that could play out and he might not be the one to blame in the end but it very much depends on how how this goes about and i think there's various fractions we cannot predict at the moment the young people now are turning up and uh, having a very personal go about uh, Macron and also the the MPs and in, in, in the assembly the majority they seem to be they're treading their feet they really don't know where to stand at the moment because they have been deprived of the vote that they actually wanted to and the, the promises the, the the question is also Macron says we need to move on but where to and that's that's where I think where his Achilles heel is because if you don't have the next thing lined up where you actually can go to and not without a majority, you will be prone to perpetuate that kind of conflict and turn it and take it into the next one because his assurance uh, or his requests to Elizabeth Baum, his he asked her to enlarge and find a majority for the next project. It's not clear what the next projects are really about and also how to enlarge in, uh, in a majority in a, in a social climate like this where you have to the left and to the right a very strong opposition streak uh, against the, the government as such. And the, not to be forgotten, I mean, the censor motion, uh, no confidence vote against the government just failed by nine votes, which is quite close, uh, too close to comfort for them. Yeah, I think as well on this point about enlarging the majority, uh, I think the more fundamental logical problem with this is that you can't a priori decide what your priorities are going to be and then say, you know what, we're going to enlarge the majority to fit these priorities. If your legislative configuration is going to change, your priorities are going to have to change and you are going to need to be open to that. If you genuinely want to build, I, I again, in, enlargement struck me as kind of vague. I don't know whether it's like a cohabitation or whether what 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 exactly they have in mind to kind of build a more sustainable legislative solution. But the starting point is uh, you can't just come in and say, look, we're going to do immigration reform in this way. I don't know. We're going to deal with EDF in this way. And then we're going to go and find a majority to do it. Y- you kind of have to look for whatever the majority is going to be first 
to a certain extent and then and then find it of course you, you can kind of bring people along right you know i think we talked once about yeah yoshka fisher saying he could always find the majority right um but he, didn't that. he said you, it's not that you can always find a majority you can always create a majority you can always create a majority is what he said you have to find it's, it's not but he it, comes out with a proposal right i mean you have to somehow formulate a proposal with which you can actually convince and the problem with Macron is that he has a proposal, or he has—it's such a vague proposal that even his own majority is actually skeptical and is not convinced. Too many people are really not sure what's going to happen next, and from there to create a majority—that's kind of difficult if you don't actually have uh, something that inspires the people behind you to to come and and, and sell the, the proposal and, and go and and look for this majority. And I don't think Elizabeth Bourne, in a technical way, uh, she can continue her conversations. We've seen also in the pension reform how that went. She hammered out some concessions with Les Républicains, and then they turned the back on her, and they actually wanted more. So this is something, it's a slippery slope if they really want to go down the line. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how problems in, in some countries, I mean, France is a very different political system than Germany, but we see very similar problems in Germany now coming up. Um, in the political system where the coalition, even though it has a, a handy you know, handsome majority, is now becoming so divided over, over spending priorities that they get stuck with their policies. For example, uh, there is no opposition from the FDP, which has really not benefited very much electorally from this coalition, going against various green projects. They're going against fiscal expansion. I mean, there was this absurd spiel about Olaf Scholz's extension of the chancellery, which Christian Linder single-handedly stopped and Scholz got him to stop the extension of the finance ministry instead. So it's, it's sort of, um, I mean, these were petty projects. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're big building projects, but they're petty in terms of, you know, the fiscal, in, in terms of the fiscal budget. But it goes to show that we, we, you know, we are now in a, we've now entered a point with inflation, with the aftermath of the pandemic, where politics is getting very, very difficult, where the period of people could do whatever they wanted to do, the whatever it takes. You know, mentality of fiscal monetary policy has ended abruptly, and we're suddenly back to a world where we have fiscal priorities and where somebody's gain is somebody's loss, as you know, we saw in the French pension debate. It is not something where we can no longer satisfy everybody in this debate, and this is a, a new era of politics. And the Germans are not striking. The Germans had their pension reform debate a couple of decades ago, but it's there about money now. Their dispute is about pay. Yeah, I, I think on the I think on uh, the coalition politics point, uh, th there's also a distinction to be drawn between two different types of coalition, right? One one of them would be like the German or Dutch style ones that are kind of starting to fray a bit, where it's it's much more open and all the parties feel like they might have different options, which is as I interpret it, what is kind of going on with Germany, where the FDP are very through their party history and their political culture internally quite used to being like the swing party. And that determines as well how they conduct themselves in government, that the kind of learned behavior being, oh, we always have options, right? And if things are going badly for us, we can push because we have options. It's similar in the Netherlands where it's like every, every coalition is going to end up being like some sort of constellation of different political parties. And everybody's kind of got to worry a little bit about the parties that occupy the same political space as them, as well as whoever they're in a coalition with. Whereas if you look, for instance, at Italy and Spain, I mean, Spain, certainly, you actually have quite a, I, I think, a relatively stable coalition configuration. There was a lot of doubt that, that kind of the socialists and Podemos were going to work. But so far, I, I personally think, at least in terms of political stability and 
being able to get things done, it has worked relatively well. But I, th- I think it's worked relatively well because both sides know that there is no alternative. And it's the same in Italy. Like things there are kind of ticking along. There's obviously the occasional little scuffle about things, something or another. But at the end of the day, everybody in kind of Georgia Maloney's alliance knows that there is no alternative. So there is that dynamic playing out too. And that dynamic is also there in France, where in the, in the opposite degree, where kind of everybody knows there will be an end to Macron, the, the fights that you're fighting now are not the fights for now, they're the fights in five years time. The, the point I was trying to make was that, that coalitions, even if they had a, a very strong plan to deal with issues, can no longer execute that plan because external events intruded and because there are no political alternatives left to, to do this. For example, if you, if you add the number of you know, the FTP has, has lost support and CDU has gained support, if you add the sum total of those two parties, it's pretty stable. And same as the sum total of Green and SPD. So mm-hmm. I'm relatively stable, stable, stable. There's a lot of switching going on within this, within these groups. There is no majority for a centre-right in Germany. Structurally, mm-hmm. that, has, that majority disappeared in the 1990s. And the centre-left alone does not have a majority. This is why we have these, these strange coalitions where you have a centre-left leadership this time with the FDP as a junior partner, or you could at one point have a centre-right leadership with the Greens as a junior partner, though this in my view, looks looks increasingly less likely, given that most of the areas where the, where the centre-right and the left disagree are green issues, like the fuel-driven car is a big issue in Germany. <laughs> They're trying to fight the last battle of the, for the motor car, rather than focusing on the next generation of, of motor cars, but that's the way it is. So so we are in a, pos- in a position here where, where politics can't help much, where, where fiscal, you know, we go, we're returning to fiscal discipline, the fiscal debt break. So that there isn't much money available for wage increases, we know you know on Monday we will have massive one-day strike in Germany, which um, is organised by different trade unions. The airports will be closed, the railways will be closed, and possibly some streets will be closed because the the, the national motorway company is also on strike. It doesn't mean that the roads are closed, but it means that certain issues that might arise would would, would not be fixed on that day, and that it might give rise to massive problems in the transportation sector. It's this kind of uh, thing that we that we are now now looking looking for, and this is something that didn't happen ten or twenty years ago, because we could ultimately solve it with money. The unions had different incentives. We are we are entering a period of confrontation, which is quite unusual for for Germany. I mean, we had twenty years of wage moderation, uh, so it feels like a, a sort of a real shift in the way how wage unions see themselves as well helped by what's happening in the labor markets. They probably have now much more power to do so. But also, and psychologically, probably also a new de- definition of what fairness is, which probably is not what the employers are prepared for, right? Well, that's that's right. Uh, I mean, what, what happened in 2003, 2000, the period 2003 to 2005, is the then Social Democratic government under Gerhard Schröder introduced labor reforms or welfare reforms that really made it very hard for people to make it the transition from going to labor to, un- to from employment to unemployment. So being unemployed became all of a sudden a very, very costly option, whereas previously it was not nearly as costly as it then became. So the trade unions had a, had a strong incentive to prioritize job security over income because the, the income levels were relatively high, or at least they, they were satisfied by them. But the biggest threat to their members was, was job insecurity. 
So they managed to get deals from employers during that period. This was also the periods of global supply chain. So German industry was kind of on a roll in that period. And they secured wage deals from their employers that secured jobs. The quid pro quo was a very long period of wage moderation. And that has now come to an end for a number of reasons. First of all, these reforms have been reversed. This is one of the things this coalition did. I mean, this, the, 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 the so-called Hartz IV reforms have, has been replaced by a generalized citizen's income, which is much less onerous than the previous system. So even if you got, uh, got into unemployment, you would still expect to maintain a fairly high income uh, for a very long time in, in contrast to previously. What also changed is that industry you know, has very little choice at the moment. The powers, the relative powers have switched between industry and, and the workers. There's no labor shortages, qualified labor. So even if you didn't have trade unions, the cost shock would still happen because people would bid up their wages. And we also get in Germany, as we have in the UK, there's the debate about the right to strike. Now, it's not, I think it is also embedded in the German constitution. But the right to strike is ultimately a consequence of the institutional setup. You have trade unions, and this is how the negotiating process works. In sectors where you don't have trade unions, where people negotiate their own salaries, you have the same equivalent. People can always withdraw their labor by quitting and go for higher jobs. Now, that most people can't do this, and this is why we have this, this setup. But it's essentially the equivalent of what's happening in, in the upper sections, where people simply you know, push up wages, and they just do it in different ways, not through strikes, but simply through sheer, sheer negotiating power. So I think no matter how you do this, and even if you were to abolish the right to strike, say in an extreme case, nobody's going to do this, it would ultimately not make much difference. The push for higher wages comes from an economic situation that we have too much labor demand and not enough labor supply. One way or the other, that this will come into balance and the way it balances is through higher wages. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And the, um, the kind of aging population thing factors into that too. So what you're going to get over the longer term is simply a secular shrinkage in the size of the workforce. That the fact that this is going to happen in some places, this is already happening, like in, like in Italy, for instance, it's, it's indisputable. So, you know, against the backdrop as well of there being some kind of fundamental qualitative shifts in the economy that will change the kind of dynamics of labor supply and demand, you have this effect. And of, and of course, as well, I think importantly, too, you have more acute sector-specific shortages because, again, naturally because of, in many cases of the aging populations too. So one of these sector-specific shortages in many countries is in healthcare, which I think is a good segue to bring us on to what's been going on in the UK. Yeah, in the UK, um, the NHS uh, doctors leaving the countries uh, because it's just the conditions to work are so poor and the pay is so poor, right? So I think it's a good reminder the NHS was really based on the, on the premise, financially at least, premise that uh, no one ever gets sick. That has changed during the pandemic. During the pandemic, people have been overloaded with work. There has not been, it was just relentless. Um, there also don't, there are not enough people coming through the education system. That's another thing also, I think in Germany, education system, do we have the right jobs? Is the education system actually delivering and preparing for the jobs of the future? Which is not only, I think, a question of uh, for the health sector, but also for all the transitions into energy sectors. Do we have the, enough capacities to build traineeships, uh, etc., to build these these jobs that are needed to to become a bit more autonomous in, in, in the manufacturing of our own solar panels or renewable energies? And together with this, um, low-paid jobs here. They also have lots of living crisis. We have nurses or uh, young doctors who can no longer afford to 
uh, have their normal way of living, so they have to cut their costs. And uh, in, in cities like London, so in Paris, I mean, all of the big cities where you have sort of a constant high level of costs, or fixed costs, that's, uh, it's, that's a big drain on the budget. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think when you talk about drains on costs and, and the way that this factors in. So this is actually one area of striking that gets talked about much less in the UK media. But one of the most significant and impactful ones will be we are now heading into a series of rolling junior doctor strikes in the UK, right in the NHS. Junior doctors make up I think it is about 45% of the total number of doctors within the NHS in the UK. Um, so these are people for those who are not familiar with how the UK healthcare system works. They've done their general medical education, but they're in the process of specialist training. They really are kind of the foot soldiers of the kind of doctor force, so to speak, in, in the NHS. They will be going on strike again in mid-April. These have a tendency to be very disruptive, but it comes on to this important point about standards and expectations. So one of the points is that we saw this as well with barrister strikes in the UK last year. These are people who you would not normally think of as striking workers maybe a few decades ago. These are like, you know, your your high-level professionals. So there's a bit of a conceptual shift here. There's also quite a lot of public support, um, especially among younger people in the UK for junior doctors striking, which I think goes to show those of us who have gone to university in the UK have talked to medic students before, and we know how much or rather how little they get paid. And so there's a there's a fair amount of, um, of, of sympathy there. But I think as well in the UK, and this is again where this comes into it, there's a real cross-cutting political divide opening up between older, often less educated people and younger, often more well-educated people, at least well-educated in terms of their access to higher education. And this is also, I think, in some respects, becoming part of the sharp end of this, where you have younger people who have, you know, gone to university and in the end, in the case of medics, they've gotten a degree which would have set them for life normally, and they find themselves in financial insecurity despite of this. And there's a kind of disconnect between what you are being told about your future and how that is actually kind of ending up. I guess this um, this is a... A phenomenon that we have all over Europe that we have to adjust our expectations, what we've been told and what we expected. I mean, bringing us back to before the pandemic, no one would have thought that we were going through phases like that. Now, the pandemic, we had the war in Ukraine, we had a cost of living crisis, energy crisis. All these things are actually a greater reality that we were not prepared for. The, the question comes back again, how resilient, what does it take for a society to be resilient and to be adaptable? It's it's like when you manage your resources according to that none of the crises happen, if that's what the employers in Germany prepare for in their wage rounds or, or the NHS prepares in the UK, then you will be hit by the crisis disproportionately. But if you assume that some crisis will happen eventually and plan for it accordingly, you will be much better set up for the future. Yeah, I think this is the essential point. It is our best case scenario assumptions which we have in fiscal policy, which we have in monetary policy. The EU has always worked on that on that assumption, or Eurozone <laughs> has been the assumption that there will never be any of the things that have actually happened, that they would that this would never never be possible. When you have high periods of inflation, as we just went through, that people will want to recoup their lost income. 
uh, governments will need to recognize that this is something that will happen. It's not something you can face down. There are compromises that are possible. I think governments should probably not automatically raise wages in line with inflation. That is certainly not a, not a good idea. But a compromise could be that you would accept a partial offset of the inflation cost, maybe coupled with uh, subsidies on electricity or maybe income tax cuts or, or other uh, other benefits that the state can provide. And the state will need to budget accordingly, but it also means the state cannot do as much as it did before, and there has to be a much more realistic fiscal planning, and I don't see that happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and as well, the state what the state can also promise or, or try to deliver are kind of provisions around public services. So, so to say, look, you know, it's more within our power to deliver things like, you know, better schooling, better transport, stuff like that, too. Um, get, getting back onto Suzanne's point about the kind of crises as well, I would almost argue the original sin in all of this is the kind of way that politicians dealt with the 2008 global financial crisis. I think there was an attempt to kind of get things back to whatever the normal beforehand was, and also a bit of a kind of, in some cases, a bit of an emerita around the really serious issues, not not just with the kind of financial system and, with pol- and, and the economy, but with politics that this raised up. I, I think for a lot of people, there was the sense that things really needed to change after the after the financial crisis. They, they largely didn't. Since then, as Suzanne's mentioned, we've had several other crises. It really feels in many respects, I, I think of the UK, but it's not exclusively the UK, it's, it's throughout Europe. The political discourse often feels stuck in another time period. It feels like there's a zombie politics that is just stuck somewhere 20 to 25 years ago. And we are not actually taking stock of the things that need to be acknowledged and the changes that need to happen. And this isn't to say that you need to have an answer for everything. It's just to say that you need to be asking the questions in the first place. I completely agree. It's uh, saying is that the unsustainable end. The question is how it will end, but, but it will end. On that note, thank you for listening. Until next week.